Welcome to Diverse, the podcast for the Society of Women Engineers. SWE supports the advancement of women in engineering and technology. You can find all of our podcasts on SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and SWE's blog all together at altogether.swe.org. Are you taking full advantage of your SWE membership? Your membership grants you access to SWE Advanced Learning for career and life. Your membership unlocks free and discounted on-demand content 24 hours a day from around the world. The SWE Advanced Learning also has live learning. With multiple tracks, Advance offers something for every career and every stage of your career. SWE's many offerings feature subject matter experts from a wide variety of thought leaders in STEM and leadership. When you want to skill up, turn to Advance first. Access learning at advancelearning.swe.org. Hi, I'm Roberto Rincon, the Associate Director of Research for the Society of Women Engineers. Welcome to SWE's Diverse Podcast Series. Please remember to add this podcast to your iTunes and like or follow us on social media. Visit SWE.org for more details. I'm joined today by Lisa Munoz, a science writer who is founder of SciComm Services, where she works with a variety of academic groups, nonprofits, and startups across the sciences on strategic, communication, and content development. She has an engineering degree from Cornell University with a specialization in science writing. Lisa was a publicist for the award-winning documentary film Picture a Scientist and is now working on a book inspired by the film, which will be published by Columbia University Press. I'm excited to talk to her today and learn more about her background and her work on the documentary and her upcoming book. Thanks for joining us today, Lisa. Thanks so much, Roberta. I'm excited to be here. So let's start off with the first question. What initially sparked your interest in STEM? Well, my really intense interest in STEM really began in the eighth grade. I had this awesome role model in my older sister, and I thought she was the coolest. She was in high school at the time, and she was doing all these really interesting science activities, and she already knew that she wanted to be an engineer. And so I thought, okay, I want to be like her. (laughs) What can I do? And so I started looking around, and I found this program called Scientific Tools and Techniques that was run through my local school district. I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia, and this was through the Fernbank Science Center. And it was a program for ninth graders where we could learn from real scientists. And it was in something like 12 different disciplines, ranging from ornithology and anatomy up to physics. And that experience uh, left such a huge impression on me. I remember two things about it. One was that I got to use a scanning electron microscope for the first time. And I thought that this was something that so few kids in the world got to do. And I took a picture of a fly's eye and I felt like I was transported to this totally new world. And I thought, wow, so this is science. I also had this cool sneak peek inside the new museum being built. As I said, this was the Fernbank Science Center in Atlanta, and they were in the process of building the Fernbank Museum. And we literally got to be in the museum while it was being built. So we saw fossils going up of dinosaurs and the IMAX, which was one of the early ones at the time, being installed. And so that experience completely solidified my interest in science and gave me the confidence to move on in high school to do some of the same activities that my older sister had been doing, like a water quality club. 
where we'd go out and test the water in our local creek. And I was lucky that that year there was also an exchange program through that club with Russian students. And so we actually had Russian students come and live with my family and others and test our water quality. And I got to go to Russia for four weeks and test the water quality there. And so it was also this amazing insight into what international research collaboration could look like. And I was only in high school. So I thought after that, okay, yes, I'm definitely going to follow in my sister's footsteps. And now it's just so interesting in hindsight because I've seen these social science studies that show that, especially for young girls, having an older sister who's interested in math and science can be really inspirational. And I'm one of three sisters, middle sister, and all three of us ended up going into science. So that was the start. I ended up going to engineering school at Cornell. Wow. What amazing experiences. That early exposure, you're right, is so important. And having somebody in your family who can inspire you in that way is a really important aspect of drawing more girls into STEM. So I can understand your interest in science, but what led you into science communication? Yes. So that was a turn that I didn't see coming, but now just seems so perfect. (laughs) I had been taking engineering courses and I'm sure like many of your members, all of those introductory math and physics courses, the prerequisites for any engineering program. And I right away felt like it wasn't quite the right fit. And it was for a number of reasons, but one of them was that I felt like there wasn't anything I especially felt passionate about to specialize in. And that year at Cornell, there was a new program called Science of the Earth Systems. And it was this interdisciplinary program where you could learn atmospheric science and oceanography and geology all within an engineering context. And I thought, huh, that could work. That's a way for me to study a lot of things and not have to specialize too deeply. And so I took this introductory course where there were rotating lecturers And one of the first ones was this on-air meteorologist for CNN. Her name was Valerie Voss, and she was a real scientist. And I remember thinking, wow, she's a woman. She's smart. She's from my hometown in Atlanta. Huh, cool. And so I went up to her right after her lecture, and I said, Ms. Voss, can I intern with you this summer? I'm from Atlanta. And she said, well, We've never had an intern (laughs) in meteorology or in science, but here's my card. Let's see what we can do. And sure enough, I ended up interning at CNN the summer after my sophomore year. And that gave me this real taste for journalism and communication. And I ultimately decided that broadcast TV wasn't right for me, but I did come back with this interest in science communication. And I took as many classes in science writing and science communication as I possibly could. And I started working at a college radio station, which was awesome and fun and also led to me meeting my current husband. So it was a great experience. (laughs) And then I was super lucky that I was able to find a job that literally started the day after I graduated working as a producer for short format radio programs about science and the environment. And I really haven't looked back since. It's been science communication for me ever since then. That's an amazing pathway. I mean, it really all sort of worked out for you. And yet, I really appreciate how you saw an opportunity and you went for it. That I think it's, is, I wish I were a bit more like that, actually. So Thank let's you. kind of f- switch over yeah. and, and talk a bit about this film. Yes. What can you tell us about the film Picture of Scientists 
and your role with the movie. Yes. So I was contacted by the film team in the spring of 2020. Who can forget the spring of 2020 when the world shut down? And Ian Cheney, who is director of the film, said, we need somebody to come onto our team who has science communication expertise and who's willing to do something different and innovative with us. We need to virtually release this film. And we really don't care that much about selling tickets. We want to create a discussion. We want to create a movement. We want to create a community of people who care about women in science. And he sent me the trailer and I got chills. And I wrote him right back and I said, yep, I'm in. (laughs) And just like that, I became the publicity and outreach producer for this film, which for those of you who haven't seen it, it is just this beautiful film that lays out the size and the scope of the problem that still remains with bias and discrimination in science. And it's this combination of stories, very compelling stories from scientists and data that's very well supported. And what we did with the film through that virtual release was incredible. We not only did sort of this theatrical release through local theaters, but we also did this huge outreach campaign that went around the world. I think we've reached so far something like more than 2,000 different institutions. These are universities. These are scientific societies like SWE. These are companies, nonprofits. And we showed the film to these groups in private screenings, oftentimes paired with panel discussions with the directors, Sharon Shattuck and Ian Cheney, sometimes with the scientists who are featured. And just the support that we've gotten in the community that we've built around the film has been amazing. And that really led to very directly to me working on the book because we got contacted by a publisher who said, have you guys thought about creating a book about this? And Lisa, would you want to write a book about this? And I said, yes, (laughs) do I want? Yes, of course. I love this film. And I really want to pick up where the film left off, which is what are the solutions to this problem? What does research say about this very thorny problem that we still have for equity in science? And so it's been this incredible journey. That's really fascinating and forward thinking of the directors to consider ways in which they could better communicate the real point of the film, right? And the stories that were highlighted, I did have the opportunity to view Picture Scientist and the stories are just so strong and compelling. Your book, are are you going to be including additional scientists and their stories and experiences? or expanding on something from the movie that really pushes the point and on the issues that women are experiencing in science so that you can lead into how we might be able to make change happen. Can you tell us just a little bit more about what you intend this book to be? Yes. And so the short answer to your question is both. (laughs) It's going Ah. to both include perspectives and stories from many of the scientists who you heard from and saw in the film, including Nancy Hopkins, Jane Willenbring, Rachel Burks, who are the most prominent within that film, but also many others, including, importantly, um, several of the social psychologists who were consulted on for the film, some of whom made it into the film, but also some unaired stories from various scientists across uh, different fields. 
And so it's going to be, again, this combination of stories from these women, but then it's going to greatly expand on what research tells us about solutions to some of these problems. So I did a lot of digging in social psychology, in organizational behavior, in the social sciences to see what is the latest and greatest research tell us about potential interventions and ways to actually fix organizational systems and society-wide systems. And so it's this combination of data and stories. And I would say the film leans a little bit more heavily on stories and the book might lean a little bit more heavily on the data and the science and really showing a path forward. Wonderful. So you have over 20 years of experience as a science communicator, and you've talked a bit about your role with a movie and how it led you to this book. But is there anything in your experience, maybe prior to working on this film, that really drew you to write this? And what was your real inspiration, I guess, for writing this book? Yeah, well, I guess I would break your question into two parts. The first, in terms of the inspiration, I think there's a story from the film that represents my inspiration pretty well. And, and that's the story of biologist Nancy Hopkins to prove that inequity in science exists at all. And she's this brilliant molecular biologist who worked her way through academia at a time in the 1960s when very few women were breaking any ground. And she remarkably not only made significant contributions to science and continues to, but she did create this entire movement starting at MIT and with the help of other female faculty there. They came out with this report that laid out the problem and potential solutions. And their report has led to so many changes worldwide for women. We owe so much to these women. And what was so moving to me and continues to inspire me to this day, both on a personal level and professionally in writing this book, is this moment at the end of the film where Hopkins says that she's sad, that she's sad in thinking about all this time and effort that went into making change for women in STEM when she just wanted to be a scientist. And that just resonated with me deeply on so many levels. I think especially in this past year, there's been so much more awareness around the disproportionate burden of work that women have. I feel this personally. I'm, I'm a mother of two daughters. I run a small business. You know, I take on a lot. And I think women in general, whether they're at home for caregiving or in the office or in the lab, they take on this extra service burden. And this is something that I discuss quite a bit in depth in the book. And so you have sort of this burden of showing that the inequity existed, you know, poor Nancy Hopkins out measuring lab space to prove that women in her department had less lab space than men. And then on top of that, coming up with solutions and actions to correct these inequities. This is a tax that women face that many men don't have to face. And that I think is even more severe for women of color. And it takes away time and energy from scientific and technical contributions. And so this kind of gets back to why I got into science writing and communications and why I do what I do in the first place, which is that I greatly admire the work of scientists and engineers, and I want them to be able to do what they do best, which is to innovate and to make discoveries and to do this incredible research. And I feel like I can help by lending my expertise on the communication side. And so with the film 
And now with my book, I want to bring more people to the table to solve it. I want to reduce the burden that's being faced by individuals like Hopkins, like so many others who are just trying to be scientists. And I think that my background as a science communicator has really well positioned me for that. You know, the first part of my career as a journalist was all about sort of getting my writing chops, getting comfortable writing about science, getting comfortable interviewing scientists, and slowly breaking into different disciplines, you know, starting in the earth sciences and geoengineering and eventually into social psychology and nanotechnology. And over time, what I've seen is that science isn't just this like monolithic objective truth. It's driven by real people who have amazing stories and backgrounds that very directly inspire their work. And so now here I am wanting to take what I've learned about the stories from the scientists themselves and think about what does it take to create the right culture of science so that everyone can succeed. And people are really at the heart of that. And I feel like my personal and professional journey has led me to this point. And I'm just thrilled and privileged and proud to be part of it. Oh, thank you, Lisa. I really feel that I have much appreciation for the work that you do. I think that the burden that individual women scientists and engineers have been shouldering over the last, you know, for decades, we really do need a community to tackle this. And so individuals from the arts, journalists, et cetera, play a really important role in tackling these obstacles and challenges that they face. But since the release of the film in the spring of 2020, can you talk a little bit about how this community has come together and the role that the community plays in helping to promote the types of changes that need to take place to create a more welcoming and inclusive science community? Yes. And it's something that I'm very proud of on this community, which like you said, it comes from so many different types of people and different types of collaborations. I'll highlight two things that I'm particularly proud of that have come out of the outreach around this film. The first is that the film team, we created this Instagram page called Stories from Science that was up last fall. And we invited a viewers to share their own stories And we wanted it to be this safe and anonymous place where anybody could share what they've experienced in being a scientist. And I think it was important, especially to help everybody feel like they aren't alone. I think this comes up in my book a lot of times. Sometimes everybody experiences imposter syndrome to a certain extent in their careers. And I think particularly for women, for people of color, for somebody who might be the target of discrimination, sometimes you can feel like, hey, maybe this is just me. Maybe I did something wrong. You know, maybe this has nothing to do with bias or discrimination. And so I think that when you see the stories of others, there's this huge power in numbers. There's this huge power in anecdotes. And that's something that we've seen borne out through the film. And we've seen these stories not only on this Instagram page, which garnered like hundreds of people writing to us, but just also the constant outpouring of interest and support from institutions around the world. You know, our online screenings continue to this day. So that's something that I'm really proud of. The other interesting and unique collaboration that came out of this community was that we ended up collaborating with some of the same social psychologists who were interviewed for the film and who are now featured in my book. 
to create a unique study about what impact can film have in changing people's views on bias and discrimination in STEM. And so these studies were led by Dr. Eva Pietri at the University of Colorado Boulder. And uh, she collaborated with Corrine Moss-Rakusen from Skidmore, who was featured in the film talking about her famous resume studies showing the difference that a male name versus a female name can make on a resume in terms of uh, hiring decisions. And so they looked at something like 2,700 participants from online screenings who participated in a survey. And they found that sure enough, the more that viewers felt engaged in the film. So these are measurements like, did they get angry? Did they take new perspectives? Were they empathetic? The more likely they were to go out and seek more information. And then they looked at six weeks later what happened. There were about half of those participants who participated in a survey six weeks later. And they found that the more that they sought information, the more they had an awareness of gender bias and a desire to address unfair treatment within their workplaces. And excitingly, they found that that was particularly true among leaders. And they did another study that I'll say really briefly was about 1,200 participants looking at some who had watched the film or some who were planning to in a few weeks. And they found that those who had already watched the film had a much higher awareness of gender bias and a much higher intention to address the bias through actions than those who hadn't. And so I think community comes in a lot of different forms. It's not just the viewing community. The fact that we've created this collaboration with social scientists that builds on the very foundational research that was discussed in the film, talking about the power that videos and films have both to change perceptions of representation and also to change attitudes and biases against people in STEM. I think to show that that worked with the film and that it could be an intervention, particularly during the pandemic when in-person trainings weren't possible, I think that there's just so much power in that type of collaboration. And I hope it's just the start. I completely agree. And the stories that you have shared, uh, that the community has shared, it's really heartening to hear how the change in attitudes and beliefs and, and the level of activism, I guess, that people feel is continuing after a period of time. So I've definitely written down stories from science. I want to check out that Instagram page. But I want to ask one more question of you. From what you've learned during your research for the movie and the book, can you share with our listeners some ways that they can help create a more diverse, inclusive, and equitable environment in their teams and companies? Yes. Well, there's so much wonderful work in social psychology and organizational behavior, psychology, social science. And what you see very quickly is that there's no magic bullet. There's no single intervention. There's no single policy. But there is a lot of really forward-looking work. And I can talk to you, and I'm going to go into so much of it in the book, but I can give you a few takeaways that I have. You know, the first is really about becoming aware. And so we all have biases. Some are explicit. Most are implicit. So these are things that, you know, we don't even necessarily know that we believe. And, you know, research just shows over and over again that the more that you become aware of your own biases and biases that exist in society, the better you are able to address those. And so you can become aware by doing simple things like watching a film, (laughs) reading a book, participating in training sessions, 
I alluded to this earlier, you know, in-person training sessions for implicit bias have shown really great results in STEM settings and in workplace settings. And now we're finding that some of these online training sessions are effective as well. You can also be an advocate for others, and that can take a lot of different forms. That could mean speaking up when you see wrongdoing. If you see somebody engaging in bad behavior over coffee at a conference, once we all go back to conferences or whatever it is, or in your workplace, call it out or pull over the person who is the target of that and offer yourself as an ally. See how you can help. Proactively, you can mentor and help aspiring women in science, which is something that I know that SWE does very well. If you are in a leadership position, you can create safe spaces for people to speak up. And that can be, as we just discussed for Stories from Science, such a powerful tool. So that could be through anonymous climate survey that you do at your workplace, through smaller forums that you set up. But I think the biggest, if I had to name like the biggest takeaway that I've had so far is that we need to start thinking about ways that organizations can change without burdening individual women or individual people of color. This is something that I talked to organizational psychologist Anitha Rattan about, and she described it to me as the need for fix the system solutions instead of fix the women solutions. And so we've had for a number of years now, lots of fix the women solutions. So that might be something like you see that men are more successful at earning grants or getting awards. And so you train women to write more like those award-winning male scientists. But she's saying, no, we have to flip that on its head. How can we change the evaluation criteria for who wins that award or grant in the first place? And so I think that that's where we're heading. That's the future of this work. That's something that I'm trying to dig into really deeply in the book. And I hope that your viewers will, you know, eventually when the book comes out, be able to really dive into some of that research and think about ways that they themselves can be agents for change and pull in their male colleagues to help to be agents of change too. This requires men just as much, if not more than women to take action. Again, we want to be taking away the burden from women so that we can create a more equitable culture for all women in science and all people in science. Absolutely. We talk a lot here at SWE about the importance of changing the system and not changing the women. So I appreciate you emphasizing that and your work in that space. Lisa, before we close, can you tell our audience when your book will be available? Yes. Thank you so much for asking. Columbia University Press is planning to come out with the book in fall of 2022, and I'm excited that I will be back on this program a few times between now and then to give you more updates and more little teasers about what to expect in the book. And I think in March, I might be back on for Women's History Month, where I can talk about some of the amazing women in history who I've discovered through my research for the book. And so that should be a lot of fun. And I really appreciate the opportunity to tell your listeners about the book. I hope that they can watch the film, Picture Scientists. It's airing on Netflix right now if they haven't seen it yet. And then keep posted, stay tuned for the book to come out in fall of 2022. Thanks so much. Thank you again for taking the time to speak with us today. I really enjoyed learning about the work that you're doing. And I truly appreciate your thoughts on the importance of bias awareness and sharing ways in which we can individually and collectively promote change within our environments. Thank you.
Thank you so much, Roberta. I'm Roberta Rincon. For all of us at SWE, thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Diverse. Please don't forget to leave us a review and share this episode with your social network. Thanks for listening.